0: All right, just to give you guys um, uh, what's going to take place during this class, uh, Pastor D is um, um, taking a break in regards to teaching. So I'll be um, teaching this class all the way through until um, the end of the semester, which would be um, the, end of, the end of June. It'd be the third week of June, I believe that's, that's going to happen there. There's two weeks that I will not be here, so D will be here two weeks. It's Memorial Day weekend and then the first weekend of June. Um, I won't be there during those two weeks. So um, Pastor D said that he was going to teach it during that, during that time. Uh, the subject that we're going to go through is um, ancient solutions to modern problems. What is ancient solutions? The Bible gives a solution to every single problem. So we can say, oh, we have a problem. What's the problem? So then, what we do is we're going to go to the Bible, and what we're going to do with the Bible. We're going to dig. <laughs> In fact, we're going to dig into the problem to see exactly what the Bible says um, about, about the problem that we are faced with. And what we want to do is we want to find all these modern problems that we are faced with, and we want to see what the Bible says about them. And uh, so I um, pick problems, but the goal is to have you guys pick problems. In fact, I'd rather have you guys pick the problems than I do, because I try to pick the problems that I think that are relevant Uh, but the problems that you think are relevant are relevant because I'm speaking to you. (laughs) So what I've done is we have a card here and just look at topics and questions in regards to problems that we're faced with. What does the Bible say um, about this problem? and um, that we're faced with in our modern world. And then what we'll do is we'll try to go to the Bible, unfold the Bible, and try to understand what this problem is, what the Bible says about this problem, maybe how to get rid of this problem. A lot of problems we can't get rid of, but we'll talk about still how the Bible reacts uh, to that problem. So I have a, a lot of problems that I've just kind of mentioned, guilt, anger. I'm going to talk about guilt today. Depression. I mean, those are emotional problems, and I'm going to start out with emotional problems. Just going to give you guys some emotional problems because it is a foundation of how we react um, to things. So, just giving us the understanding of how the Bible talks about those. But then we can go on and on. Um, these are just rough, rough things. Temptation, addiction, uh, government. Pro- you know, I don't know if you think it's a problem or not. Maybe you don't think it's a problem. Maybe it is. I don't know. Addiction, um, <laughs> and we'll get into whatever you guys want to get into in regards to racism, what does the Bible say about race, overcoming abuse, overcoming sexual abuse. These are huge problems that are not mentioned from the public stage or even from a pulpit. Sexual abuse, one out of four girls in our country right now are being sexually abused. And do you believe it? I will tell you, I believe it because I work with people in this church. And every time I turn around, somebody, yeah, sexually abused. Yeah, I'm sexually abused too. Yeah, my daughter was just sexually abused. It's just like, Constant that has taken place. It is a huge, huge problem, and we want to know what the Bible says about it. How you can overcome it if it's in, taken, if it's taken place. So I do want to caution you that that uh, we go pretty raw in this room. In other words, we'll just say it the way it is, and we're not going to try to water things down. Um, uh, the Bible, you know, I don't even, <laughs> is R rated. It just says this is issues, and they are core, strong issues that is destroying human beings. We want to go after those issues and those problems and we'll say it the way it is. And as we're saying it the way it is, it might get even sort of graphic if we talk about those areas, which I think that is an area that we definitely need to talk about as there's so many people that are suffering with it. Nobody talks about it. Nobody nobody speaks about it. So overcoming abuse, overcoming sexual abuse, broken families, adulteries, blended families, um, depression, envy, jealousy, fear, homosexuality, uh, if we want to go um, into that, we um, might pull out, well, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? You know, what is the response? Our culture is saying something about homosexuality. But what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, we'll go, we'll go right into it if you'd like to. Identity issues, raising children, poverty, suicide, abortion, uh, capital punishment, racism, I already said that, gay marriage, if you guys want to talk about that. What does the Bible say about gay marriage? You know, we'll, we will go into um, these hot topics. Now, when it comes to um, topics um, in regards to these problems, uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to speak about them in regards to the, what the Word of God, I believe, says about it and show you passages of what the Word of God says. And then you guys will have opportunity to be able to ask, ask questions um, at the end as long as I don't go, go too long. But by asking questions, um, we can only go as deep as our maturity level is in the room. <laughs> so in other words, if we're going to talk about problems then we're going to have to have grace. We're going to have to have understanding. We're going to have to go, okay, this is a huge, huge problem. And then this person's going to be extremely passionate about it. This person can be extremely passionate about it. And then all of a sudden we're talking about it. Well, these people might be on two different planes. Well, if those people are on two different planes, it's okay. I, I'm not, we're just bringing this up, just talking about it. But I'm the one that was, would be speaking, so we can continue to ask questions as long as that person doesn't get throw, stones thrown at them from that person. So in other words, if there's any stones that are being thrown, they all got to come up here. Because <laughs> what we're doing is we're talking about it. We might disagree with some of the things. But when we start talking about these problems, these issues, you might say, well, Mike, I disagree with you. That is great. Praise God. But you can't say, well, I disagree with you over there. Because <laughs> that, that doesn't work that way. So what we'll do is as we're talking about these problems, uh, we will talk in depth. And you might say, well, this is what I think. And, you know, I'll say, thank you. And, um, and, um, and agree with you, but somebody else might not. And so even my response is going to be to try to harvest um, unity that is completely in the room. Now, you might be going, well, this is kind of crazy. This is, you know, um, to be able to talk like this. Well, I used to do this class for about four years, and I'll tell you that our, our church is so mature. <laughs> the maturity of our church is just absolutely mature. We used to talk about, oh my goodness, I think we talked about everything, didn't we, Garner? <laughs> we, just, <laughs> we just talked about everything. So we just want to continue to harvest that, okay? We want to continue to harvest that unity, and that unity also um, is required that when you leave, you can say, well, you know, I really disagree with Pastor Mike. That doesn't make a difference, because I agree with him on the gospel, <laughs> you know? And even when I give statements, you know, I do give hard statements sometimes. Well, I'm not trying to, you know, cause tension. I'm just trying to make the statement, this is what I believe that the Bible says as we're walking into this. We live in a crazy world, and in that crazy world there's a lot of suffering. And in this suffering, people don't know where to go. My cry is that people go to the ancient text to find a solution to the suffering that is happening and the problems that people are faced with. So the problem we're going to deal with today is guilt-slash- Shame. Oh, did I say, put this card in, hand it back up on the table when you guys are done, because I want you guys' problems put in here. Guilt and shame. The reason why I picked this text is because I don't think I've had any more conversations in regards to guilt. People in the church, they just, they feel guilty. <laughs> I mean, they do. People come to me all, all the time. It's just, I, I'm paralyzed by guilt. I don't even know if God loves me anymore. I don't even know if, if God thinks I'm anybody. And then they start giving me their sins, and as they tell me their sins, they tell me their sins as if they are completely and entirely destroyed, and then they have no life in them. There's a problem with that. The reason why is because if a believer has committed a sin, and they're completely destroyed by their sin, and they have no life in them, they will destroy their entire family as a result of that guilt. They'll destroy the relationships as a result of that guilt. They will Pull away from God as a result of that guilt. In fact, if you, know, you categorize it, and I don't know if you can categorize it, I just give you this category in the sense that we can um, um, see what the picture is of how many people are, are going to hell. How many people are going to hell in regards to complete rejection? You know, ah, say 40%. How many go into to hell because they're atheists? Ah, say you know, 20% are atheists. How many are going to hell because of guilt? You know, I want to, <laughs> what's the percentage? I have no idea. 30, 40, it's not two. And the reason why is because so many people, I cannot walk into the church. And the reason why I cannot walk into the church is because of what I've done. People are destroying their families because of their past. They're not looking at the present, they're looking at their past, and they're literally destroying their their present relationships because of their past. People are destroying the name and the word of God and annihilating the gospel because of their guilt. (laughs) Because what happens is guilt is a powerful source and topic in the Bible, but it can be used for complete destruction. So let's just look at the topic and let's look at Um, the topic of guilt and see well what does the ancient text say about it so i'm just going to say what does the bible say about guilt and then i want to ask the question how do you get rid of guilt so here's what the bible says about guilt and this is i'm going to work off of two passages one in second corinthians and one off of psalms two kinds of guilt guilt that saves which is a godly guilt and guilt that kills which is a worldly sorrow So here's the passage, and then then we will work this passage over to see what the ancient text is saying about our guilt and what it should be doing to us and what we should be doing with it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow, godly guilt, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's a problem. (laughs) There's the problem. There's a guilt that brings death. There's a guilt that brings salvation that leaves no regret. But there's one that brings death. And then the passage goes on to explain the one about salvation. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So let's look at the guilt that saves, and then we'll look at the guilt that kills. The guilt that saves is the drive of the passage, because it is mentioned. The guilt that saves is number two. But what is the guilt that saves? Just look at the bottom of the passage. Guilt gives you an earnestness to correct sin. That's what guilt is. That's what guilt is about. The passage literally says there's a guilt that leads to salvation, and what it takes place in chapter 11, it gives you an earnestness. An earnestness of what? An earnestness to correct sin. What is sin? Sin is designed to destroy everything that you love. Sin is designed to destroy the closest relationships you have. Sin is designed to annihilate your family, annihilate your children, annihilate your reputation, annihilate your job, annihilate God's name, annihilate everything. That's what, that's what sin is. And what does God want? He wants it out of your life. He does. He wants it out of your life. So what's he going to do if he wants it out of your life? I got this Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does what? It is a conviction. So I can just say it's cause guilt. It is a tool that God uses to say whoa, 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 don't destroy your kids. Stop. Whoa, whoa, whoa. don't destroy your life. Whoa, 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 don't mess up this relationship that you have with God thinking that this is okay when the Bible says it's absolutely not. That's what guilt does. It gives you to correct sin. Guilt gives you an eagerness to clear yourself. You say, clear yourself? Where do you get clear yourself? If you guys notice, I'm just trying to use the exact same words that are in that passage. Look at 11. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself. What does clear yourself mean? Clear yourself, clean yourself. I don't want this on me anymore. I want it off. I want it washed. I want it gone. Now think about how many people are ruled by the past. What's taking place is people are ruined by the past, or destroying the, they're destroying the present. The conviction or the guilt that is given you is not to ruin the past, or not to ruin the present, but to get rid of the past so you can live alive in the present, and that is why God is literally saying, "I will give you guilt, but the guilt is for a purpose for the desire to specifically be clean. Going faster through this, guilt gives you an indignation for sin. <laughs> we better have an indignation for sin, the sin that wants to destroy our children, our family, our kids, our reputation, destroy everything in its marks. Guilt gives you an alarm for the destruction of sin. We just watched a soccer game um, a couple days ago. And as we we're watching the soccer game, you know, my daughter was playing, and all of a sudden they had this big old siren that went off, and all it meant was halftime. But I'll tell you that it got my blood going because it was extremely loud, saying, whoa, my goodness, something's going on. What in the world's going on? I didn't notice the clock running out. Oh, it was just halftime. But whenever you hear a alarm go off, you pop up. You look around. Something happened. Something's moving. something is taking place. Emergency is there. That's what an alarm does. Guilt is what? An alarm. He even calls it an alarm in the NIV. What alarm? Alarm of what? Alarm of the destruction of sin. You do not want this, and that's what guilt is bringing to you. Guilt gives you a longing to be free from sin. I want those chains completely broken. Therefore, every time that you sin, I'm going to make you feel guilty. Why? Because I want you to be responsive. I want you to come to me as a result. Of it, I want you to be responsible. I always give you. This is God speaking. I always give you guilt that has taken place because I want you to be free from sin. And as long as you keep on sinning, I'm going to keep on sending your guilt your way. But there's people that don't like that. And what do they do if they don't like it? You just got to get rid of it. <laughs> there's people that just want to take that conscience. They want to take that guilt. They just want to get rid of it. And God say, no, 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 no. Hang on to this. This is guilt that brings salvation. This is guilt that is good. Guilt gives you um, gives you a concern to the fallout of sin. If you're feeling guilty and and just looking at the passage again, you got a concern. What's the concern? There's going to be a fallout. Um, What happens with sin is sin is absolutely immediate for the purpose of destruction in the future. So you can enjoy sin and you can say it really tastes good. And many people are driven by that taste. They're driven by that flavor. The only problem, the problem, I'm not going to say the only problem, but the problem with sin is that taste that you have in the present that is not God's law is going to annihilate you in the future in the sense that it will catch up with you. If it doesn't destroy you in the present, it will catch up with you. It will ruin you. It will destroy you. And so many people are looking back, and they're they're looking back even at at, um, the things that have taken place in the past and say, oh, I wish I did not have that sin because of the destruction that marked its way. Guilt gives you concern to the fallout of sin. Guilt gives you the desire um, to make it right. So that's guilt that saves. It's guilt. Does God use guilt? Uh, God is the main source (laughs) of literally using guilt. I want you guys to open your eyes to the way that you need to live to bring heaven to this earth. And guilt is literally used. But there's a guilt that kills. Number three, the guilt... That kills. What is the guilt that kills? And this is the problem. This is where it's at. The guilt that kills is the guilt that keeps you that keeps you in bondage to shame. If you have shame, guilt is using you for the purpose of destroying you. If you have shame, guilt is using you for the purpose to destroy you. What is shame, letter one? Shame is when guilt moves from knowing you have done something bad to feeling that you are bad. You see what takes in place is that, are you bad? Um, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, you're bad. Am I bad? The answer is yes, I'm bad. Uh, when when was i bad i mean tell me when i was bad i was bad in my mother's womb and when i came out of my mother's womb i showed the world that i was bad and my mom was here last week, and she told me the story over and over. She does have dementia and Alzheimer's, but she told that story over and over and over again, honestly, about 40 times in the week that I hung out with her, of how bad I was when I came out of the wound and how I did not like it. And I have been bad. But do you know what else has taken place in me? Is I'm no longer bad. I have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. I have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. So, me as a person is not bad. Me as a person has been redeemed. And the reason I say that I'm not bad is because I had a guilt that made me feel horrible and then put me in absolute despair, which is shame, thinking I am a bad person and I need a life. And I found life, life to the fullness which is Christ, which is a Savior, which is redemption, which I wish every single person in this planet would find. Because that's what guilt is doing. Guilt is driving us to say, yes, you're doing bad, and then all of a sudden it sits on us that we are bad, and the entire purpose of all of that is for a desperation to say that I need a Savior. But then when you get a Savior, what takes place? What takes place? You're called literally born again. The old is gone. The new is come. So all of a sudden, this guilt comes my way, and guilt is communicating to me, don't do this, Mike. Don't do this, Mike. Don't do this, Mike. But then all of a sudden, it shifts to shame, and I'm thinking, you know what? I, I am bad. I mess up. Do you know how many Christians I hear say those words? I am bad. I messed up. There's no way that God would love me. There's no way that God would, 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 uh, um, would, would save me. That is a complete entire mockery to God. <laughs> In fact, my, my response, and it's kind of an aggressive response, I, I just say, you look at the cross <laughs> and you say those exact words of God. There's no way you'd save somebody like me. You see, what happens is the cross is communicating that I have the power to save and redeem and to wash. Therefore, if you are guilty, confess your sins. And when you confess your sins, you know what you're going to do? You're going to get another taste of my salvation. You can get another taste of my glory. In fact, your eyes will be open to, again, your salvation of exactly who you are. But how many believers live in shame and say, I have sinned, therefore I am bad. I have sinned, so I am bad. Well, here's what you do. If you have sinned, therefore you think you're bad, you walk them to the throne room of grace and say, God, forgive me. And do you know what you're going to get? You're going to get salvation all over again. What I mean by salvation all over again? A washing that literally even takes place. Shame should not be in any believer whatsoever. Number two, I need to go faster. Shame focuses not on what you've done, but on being ashamed of who you are, and there is absolutely no saved person that should feel that way, and every unsaved person should feel that way so they can go to Jesus, accept Christ, and be clean. But a saved person should never feel that way, and the reason why is because they're supposed to proclaim to the world that you have something, (laughs) You, that you literally have something. And what is that? I am guilt-free, I am a new person, I am born again, even though I was messed up and am still even messed up. I have a God who put his mark on me. And that mark is salvation. Psalms 25, no one who whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. See, all this guilt and all this shame is driving should be driving every unsaved person to the cross and every single saved person should hold on to it with complete security but we also have an accuser revelation 12 says for this the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our god day and night has been hurled down satan has a job for (laughs) the believer Guilt, 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 guilt. And as a result, what happened? All these believers in this church are bound by guilt, placed into shame, and their ministry is completely annihilated to any unbeliever because the world doesn't know what we have because we do live in guilt, (laughs) because we do live in shame. We cannot live in guilt. We cannot live in shame because we have a Savior Shame creates an inner desire. maintains rigid control over our emotions, and we cannot have any part of shame in our life. Shame creates an inner loneliness and fosters unhealthy dependencies. Shame steals from you the joy of your salvation. Shame keeps you from, um, from seeking solitude with the God. With God, sin pulls you away. Our shame completely pulls you away from God. Say, God, I am not good enough, and. If you want to use the Lord's name in vain, it is absolutely horrific because it's in the Old Testament. Do not do it. But that is a statement to use the Lord's name in vain. I'm not good enough for you, God. I don't even want to say that out loud. Because God is saying, are you saying my cross is not complete? Your shame is gone. You're a new person. Guilt has set you free. Letter B. The guilt that kills is the guilt that keeps, um, keeps you in bondage of fear. A lot of, I don't want to stereotype, but I will say a lot of women um, struggle with their husbands talking to (laughs) them. How come he won't open up to me? How come he won't share my feelings? How come he won't give me an understanding of what's going on in his heart? Why is he so closed off? And I will say that women have that same problem with men. Too, or men have the same problem with women. Why is my wife so closed off? Why won't my wife um, open up to me? Why won't my wife give me an understanding of what's going on in her so we can get connected and move through this? Why why is that taking place? The reason why it has taken place is because people are afraid, afraid to be known. What is stopping people from being known? They are afraid that somebody will see them for who they are. And if somebody sees them for who they are, they're not going to like them. So even inside of our marriage, we put up protection. We put up protections against ourselves to make sure that we're okay, to make sure that we're all right. Now, there's a damage that takes place. The reason the damage that takes place is what is intimacy? Intimacy. I mentioned in this last sermon, intimacy is to be known, to be known emotionally, to be known physically. That is intimacy. So marriages are struggling completely and entirely to be connected in intimacy. Why? Because they're scared to death to be known. Where does that fear come from? Fear comes from guilt. I'm not good enough. And you think about that all in your mind. I'm not good enough. I, don't, I shouldn't be. I'm not good enough. I'm not great enough. I'm not the best husband. I'm not the best wife. If my wife knew everything, if the world knew everything, if the church knew everything about me, it's just it's not, it's not good enough. Fear comes into the category of guilt, and we live under the bondage of it. What is fear? Fear of refusing to be known. When you are crushed under criticism. The reason why you're crushed under criticism is because you're, you're afraid that somebody will see you and you have guilt of who I am. And if somebody criticizes me, in fact, every time somebody criticizes me, I have to use these, these words where is my security? Is it in God? And if my security is in God, I'm born again, I'm saved, and I know who I am. I thank you for the criticism. It's not easy to do. I thank you for the criticism because you see something in me where I can change a little bit, and that's why you're giving it to me. But all sense of criticism, if you receive criticism, all of it should be like, okay, I know who I am. Therefore, the whole world can criticize me because I know who I am. But guilt behind the scenes creates this fear that makes us react to criticism. And then guilt, bondage of fear because of a painful heart. I just hurt. And because of our hurting that takes place, it's uh, driven specifically from guilt. Genesis three ten says this, He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. <laughs> There's the guilt right there. I was afraid because I was naked and you could see me. And therefore, what did I do? I hid. That statement right there is in so many relationships in our church. I was afraid because I don't want you to see me, so therefore I'm going to hide. I'm not going to talk. I'm going to pull back. And the, the, the sad part about that is intimacy cannot take place as... A result. Letter C. Guilt that kills is a guilt that keeps you in bondage of anger. It should be too anger. Guilt turns on you and it burns inside of you. And it creates something inside of you. And it's a taking control. This is the things that it creates. Taking control of by rebellion, you want to control. If you've, if you've done something that makes you feel out of control, guilt is going to make you want to control, and therefore the only way you can control is rebellion. And this is where people are just being pushed, driven. In fact, even look at, look at children. And a lot of people um, talk to me, just, just in the sense that I'm a pastor, even about you know, raising, raising kids. And um, in fact, somebody even talked to me last night. They said, okay, I have a, a junior hire that will not will not listen to me. <laughs> and, uh, and everything that I say, it's just, there's just it's a reaction. Well, I don't care. And he's just complete, complete blowing up consistently all, all the time. He goes, just tell me something quick <laughs> I can do. Tell me something quick I can do. And I'm like, huh, I don't know. <laughs> <Junior> <laughs> higher, this, this. But this is, this is what I said to him. Is kids are controlled by compliments. Because every kid desires to be successful under any circumstances. They do desire to be successful, and a compliment says that that child is successful. You did a good job. I love you. You are absolutely amazing. In fact, you can control young kids and junior and higher kids in regards to a compliment. I know you didn't get everything done, and you've got four Fs. But do you see the D? It's good. I, you, you, you're making progress. What you're doing is you're driving the kid forward into a C. I mean, that's that's what you're doing. But see what happens: three Fs, one D. Almost in everything, we can make those statements. And all a kid's like, i just, can't, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't please. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't." And they literally start pulling back into this. And as they're pulling back into it, you're wondering, why won't that kid listen to me? What happens is if all of our statements, and I would say the majority of our statements, are correction to a kid, rebellion is going to be at your forefront. And the reason why is because you need over 50% of your statements to be compliments before you even get the right to correct so what happens you have to say it all the time because what you're trying to do is you're trying to drive this kid forward, but the kid is already questioning himself in guilt. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I'm a loser. I'm a lost person. And then all of a sudden when they get to high school, there's a huge revelation on how lost they are because the school is messed up. Kids are messed up and I have no friends and I'm overweight and rebellion just goes like crazy. It stems from guilt. So when you when you look at your children, say, I want to get rid of this guilt because they have a guilt that's going to destroy I'm going to tell my child consistently how wonderful you are, and when you tell them how wonderful they are all the time, then when you tell them not to do something it's like, oh my goodness, my parents have my best interest in mind so guilt does start the rebellion, starts taking control you start to take control, if you feel guilty and lost, you start to take control by attacking, we get that by talking back by being angry, but we get it as adults as well we feel guilty, what takes place is somebody else's fault. It's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. In fact, we are judgmental people because we have guilt. <laughs> if we do not have guilt, we would not be judgmental people. Believe that or not? Do you believe that? Because as long as I feel guilty, the only way I can nurture myself if I don't want to use God is to put you down. Because <laughs> if I can slam you down, I can actually go up <laughs> to, feel, to feel better about myself. As long as I take the position of putting people down, I can, I can raise myself up. It's all under guilt. So if we just say, you know, God, I'm saved. This is who I am. I am confident. I am washed free from my sin. And guilt is literally taking away. And this is a structure that I have in, in Jesus Christ. Then I don't need to put you down because I'm already up. <laughs> I'm already up. And shame doesn't no longer exists. What I mean by shame no longer exists is I am connected to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who cares if you say who I am? <laughs> this, is, this is good. That's the direction the guilt can do to you, the ugly guilt, the guilt that the accuser is trying to pull on you, made and designed to destroy you. Taking control by shifting blame. Um, how many of us do that? Yeah, we do it. We do it constantly. It's not me, it's them. You know, just let you know, it wasn't me somebody else you know just what takes place it's again driven by guilt so we'll ask a question because what we want to do is we want to be like free of guilt i just want to say we do I, we believers are supposed to be alive <laughs> the joy of the lord is our strength and god gave us salvation that you cannot participate in for the purpose of you saving yourself so guilt can be completely washed away I mean, that's, that's where the heartbeat of salvation is. Guilt needs to be completely entirely washed away. How do you wash it away? I just want to go to an Old Testament story, which is King David. And I want to make this, this really quick, but it's not going to be um, easy to be quick. But um, King David was um, a phenomenal king, but he made a great mistake. Horrible mistake. He had 37 mighty men that were the closest to him, the closest to him in battle, the closest to him. They were so loyal to him. And as these mighty men were at war with his entire army, David was at home. And when he was at home, he looked out his window and he saw somebody bathing. It was Bathsheba who was bathing, a wife to one of his mighty men. And when he looked at her, what he did is he asked his servant, why don't you go get her? And the servant literally said, they're trying, he's trying to give guilt into David so it doesn't happen. You want me to go get Bathsheba? Do you mean Uriah's wife? I mean, the, the servant doesn't want to lose his head as he's talking to a king, but he's trying to put a little bit of guilt in there to say, no, 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 do this, because you never address, back in the day, you never address somebody as somebody else's wife, but this servant literally said, you want me to go get this person's wife and bring to you, David, is that correct? David said, yes, his brains were just gone. (laughs) And he wasn't even thinking about it. All he wanted was that sin. So all of a sudden the woman comes up, Bathsheba comes up and he sleeps with Bathsheba. And then after he sleeps with Bathsheba, he has a problem because she is then pregnant. So as she's pregnant, he's got to fix the problem because, I mean, guilt is completely struck into him. So um, he wanted to get Uriah back to the house to sleep with his wife. So he ordered his commander-in-chief to go get Uriah and get him back to this house and give him a report. And when he came and gave a report, Uriah, who was somebody who was completely loyal to David, completely loyal to God, and completely loyal to the king, came to David and said, here is the report. David says, all right, now what you need to do, go back home, sleep with your wife, have a meal, take a glass of wine. And Uriah looked at him and says, my men are on the battlefield. I can't enjoy my wife, I can't enjoy my roof, and I can't enjoy the comfort of my home when my men are on the battlefield. This is a soldier. (laughs) This is a soldier that is completely and entirely respected. He went down to his house and he slept on his porch because he was not going to take his wife while his brothers were on the battlefield. And David noticed that. And David said, this is a and the reason why it's a problem is because she's pregnant. And if he doesn't go into her and have sex with her, then it's, it's going to come back that I am the one that did it. So he calls Uriah back up to his headquarters the next day and says, all right, we've got to work this a little bit. So he tries to get him drunk for the purpose of sleeping with his wife, but it doesn't work. And so again, David sent Uriah back to war. They put him on the front lines. They pulled off the front lines, and Uriah was killed in the battlefield, it was a murder that David did. He stole somebody's wife, and then all of a sudden he killed him to cover it up. And as he killed him to cover it up, he's thinking, okay, whew, finally, it's all taken care of. But then Nathan, the prophet, gave him a little story. And I don't want to go into the whole story, but Nathan, the prophet, um, literally said, I've got to give you a piece, pieces of the story. There's somebody in the kingdom... And inside of this kingdom, there was a, a little boy with a lamb. And it was the most beautiful lamb to the heart of that boy. And he just loved it. He cared for it. He nurtured it. It was like his life. And then was a rich man that had a whole bunch of lamb. Well, the rich man wanted somebody to come over to eat. And the rich man didn't want to take out any of his lambs that he doesn't even know. So he went and he stole that little lamb of that little kid. And then he brought it and he butchered that lamb. And then after he butchered That lamb, they shared the feast. What do you want me to do with that person, David? And oh, David got mad. And he says, you, he just went after that person. That person should be slaughtered. Bring that person here. He should not even exist. Then Nathan said, that person is you. And you did it to Bathsheba. And you did it to Uriah. And all of a sudden, guilt was just struck into his bones. How did he get rid of it? There's a passage in Psalms that says how he get rid of it. And I just want to work through the passage really fast because I want to give you guys time to ask questions, which I'm not giving you time to ask questions. I'm really sorry. Um, this is what he did. God, have mercy on me. This is his prayer. Have mercy on me. Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to the great compassion of Blot out my transgressions. What do you think, why do you think David had the right to go to God after he did something like this? God granted him the right. And since God granted him the right, God was impressed by the right and gave him life because he came to him. Why? Because he wants, he's a king, David's a king. He wants David to literally be free even of the guilt that he's done, because he wants to be him to be alive as a king. He wants to be a good king. He wants him to portray who God is by having that guilt literally taken away. David needed life, and his first cry was, have mercy on me. And it was the same cry that Peter had when he rejected Jesus three times. But it was not the same cry that Judas had when he sold Peter. Because Judas went out and he hung himself. Peter went out and he confessed. You see what happens? It's not that you sinned. It's literally what are you going to do with your sin? Because if you sin, no matter how big it is, you've got to figure out what you're going to do with it. Am I going to take it to God or am I going to keep it on myself? If you keep it on yourself, what? You're not going to want to live. Just like Judas. I've got to die. Hung himself. Peter had a different mind. I have completely done something that Judas has done. I'm going to take it to God and say, God, I am absolutely sorry. And salvation takes place at that step. So first, ask for mercy. First thing David did. Next thing, if you want to get rid of your guilt, ask to be clean. What does ask to be clean mean? Ask for my past to be gone. Ask for my garbage to be gone in the past. We're paralyzed by our past. We're paralyzed by our history. Literally ask, God, I want my past gone. I want you to look at me as a completely new person. New person who is washed and who is clean. Psalms 51, wash away all my iniquities, clean up my past completely and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sins is always before you that I don't want them on me because I can't have them on me. Get rid of that past. You have to get rid of the past because remember what past does? Past is designed to destroy the present. What's taken in the past is designed to destroy the present. You grew up under an alcoholic father and as a growing up under an alcoholic father, it is extremely difficult and things are happening to you. What's going to happen is you're going to take that right into the marriage. The same thing is going to take, take it into the marriage. You've done all these things in the past. You're going to take it right into the marriage. I had sex with multiple women before I came into my marriage. You've got to get rid of that so your marriage can survive, because if you don't get rid of it, your marriage is not going to survive. Guilt needs to be completely clean. The only way to do it is the same way that David did it. Wash away my sin, my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sins are always before you. So the first thing, ask for mercy, ask to be clean, and then repent for rejecting the goodness of God. problem of your sin is not necessarily the act of what was done, but what the, who the act was against. Who the act was against. Listen to David's language. Against you and you only. You don't, whoa whoa, 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 No, no, he didn't only sin against God. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his country. But yet David is confessing And as he's confessing, he's taken this confession to a crazy level. He doesn't mention Bathsheba. He doesn't mention Uriah. He doesn't mention anybody else. He just goes right to God and says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I've done evil on everybody else's side. but I'm only speaking to you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful. From the time of my mother conceived me, surely you desire truth in the innermost parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place, cleanse me with hyssop, and will be clean, and I will be clean. Wash me and make me whiter than snow. Why did he say against you and you only have I sinned? I'll try not to go on this for a long time, but it's sin is not primarily breaking the law. Sin is an attack on the lawgiver. Sin is not primarily breaking the law. Sin is an attack on the law giver. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. In the the Garden of Eden, taking the fruit, something else had to take place before it happened. What had to take place? The thing that had to take place in Adam and Eve's mind is that they had to think that God did not have their best interest in mind. Because if God doesn't have my best interest in mind, then the fruit can be mine. If God doesn't have my desires in mind, then I can I can do this. They have to literally attack the lawgiver before you break the law because they have to every time you sin, you have to think something about the lawgiver that is ugly, that is not good, that is evil, that is corrupt before you can even break the law. It's just you and you alone with God. This is the heartbeat of the ugliness Of sin. Yeah, we we, we do things, but every time that we do things, we are making a statement and coming up with a a preconception of who God is before we're even capable of literally doing things. Before you sin, you need to reject the goodness of God and you need to attack the goodness of God before it ever happens. Here, David was God doesn't have my best interests in mind, God doesn't understand my feelings. God doesn't think, that I'm, I'm, uh, doesn't think that I'm a powerful guy, a good enough guy, therefore I think I'm going to grab a hold of this. God doesn't think before he went over there he had a perception of God. But then what takes place is David knew that and he went above it and he said, to you and you only, my perception of you was ugly, was wrong, and that is why I did this. Please God, forgive me. And when you repent, that way, what is taking place is you are repenting outside of yourself. You are literally saying, God, my relationship with you is absolutely rotten. I'm not almost focused on what I did. I'm focused on this relationship with you. In fact, God, it's not even the, the, the simple fact of what I did. The simple fact is I cannot believe I'm capable of doing what I did. I can't believe that I have a relationship with you in the way that I have a relationship with you because I'm capable of doing what I did. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. That statement right there is a statement of literally pleading for salvation. (laughs) Against you and you only, if you are fixing that, you can fix the backbones of sin that take place in the past. If you are fixing that, You're fixing the things that are taking place in the past. Was David going to do it again? I'll tell you that when he repented, he went right to the heart upon you and you only, God, did I sin. He is moving in a way that he's saying, this relationship has got to be strong, this relationship has got to be rich, this relationship has to be clean and pure, and my guilt has to be removed, because if it's not, then I'm going to go into the sin again. Very, very powerful when we go to God. First step, go to God and ask for mercy. Ask to be clean, but... Ask for the purpose of God, please forgive me for attacking your goodness and your mercy. If you repent, you're not thinking God is good. It opens you up to the fact that God is good. That's what repentance is. Number seven, ask for life. This is what David did. Oh my goodness. Give me mercy. Give me clean. Forgive me, God, for for assassinating your reputation, for assassinating our relationship. And then number one, just give me life. Psalms 51, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Look at me, but do not look at my sin is exactly what he's saying. Hide, my, hide your face literally from my sin. And then he just comes right out and asks the word, ask to be new. It's interesting that he doesn't ask for a second chance. When we sin, a lot of our prayers is what? God, I'm sorry. Please give me another chance. <laughs> I'm sorry, God. Please make sure I don't do it again. God, I'm sorry. Please, <laughs> please just give me another opportunity to not do it again. God, I will, I will fix it. I will make sure it's right. I will make sure it's good. I um, will make sure that I won't blow it again. That's, that's within our, our confession. uh, in Psalms, he doesn't ask for a second chance. He asks to be made completely and entirely new. David is not concerned about the fact that he did it. He is concerned that he was capable of doing it, and the only way he won't be capable of doing it again is if he was a new person. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, do not cast me away from your presence, O Lord, and take not the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach, other, teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. What does he do? He asked to be new, but look at verse 13. Why does he want to be new? So his ministry will continue. Why does he want to be new? So his ministry will continue. You see what happens is David knows he can't carry the guilt. He did something horrible. In fact, we could look at him, we could throw stones at him, but also remember that David is a man after God's own heart. That is said in Paul. Did something absolutely horrible, but he could not carry it because as long as he carried it, what's going to happen? Destruction would take place in his, to God's name. Destruction would take place in his kingdom. Destruction would take place to his personality. As long as he carried the guilt... His ministry was not going to be there because his statement is God is not powerful enough to forgive. That's why the last words after he says "Created me a clean heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit in me for the purpose so I can teach others Your way and that sinners will be converted to You." That statement there is you got to get rid of it. You got to get rid of it, and there is the, the the points on how to get rid of it. Ask for mercy. Ask to be clean. Repent for rejecting the goodness of God. Ask for life. Ask to be new. We have about one minute, and I won't do this to you guys every week, I promise, <laughs> for questions. And it's all right if we don't have questions either, but if we do, I promise I will give you guys more time. It's just, you know, this is, this is a good subject, huge subject. All right, let's just pray. God, I just pray that guilt will be removed from every person who is saved. God, when guilt comes our way, God, it is an alarm that sin is there, but it's not designed to stay in us. It is an alarm for us to respond to. And I pray, God, that every believer would respond to the alarm, but not bring the guilt into shame, because we cannot be people that is proclaiming shame to a lost world. Because the lost world already feels shameful, and they need to know that they have a savior. And the only way they know we're going to have a savior, God is they know we have a savior. Remove the guilt God from us. Remove the sin from us. God make us into people. Make us into people, to minister to those God that are not free. In Christ's name. Amen.